We have got to cut costs, people. Ideas. We could open an account on FedEx.com, save 10% on online express shipping. Okay, how about this? We open an account on FedEx.com, we save 10% on online express shipping. Uh, you just said the same thing I said, only you did this. No, I did this. Okay, the presentation's tomorrow, so let's make sure we all know our usual responsibilities. Jeff, you keep feeding me old information. Dean, I need you to continue not living up to your resume. Sue, you're in charge of waffling. Are you sure? Jerome, you'll talk a big game, then do nothing. Let's do it. Rick, can you fold under pressure for me? Like a lawn chair. And Ted, you just keep thinking everyone's out to get you. They are. I'll be at FedEx Kinko's, where they'll help me design, print, copy, and finish the proposal. Put your presentations together at FedEx Kinko's. Make it, print it, pack it, ship it. Our office is your office. Good for FedEx, making some commercials that poke fun at the workplace. We're going to talk about work today. Doesn't that fire you up? We're going to talk about the J-O-B. And FedEx, some of those, those two commercials themselves, uh, as I understand it, debuted during a Super Bowl kind of recently, but there's a series of others. And it's funny if it's a FedEx commercial, but I know it's painful in real life to know that many of us are kind of broken down by dysfunction at the office Maybe like that one guy, we have a good idea, we want to make a contribution, but it gets looked past or shut down, and we don't get what we, the recognition that we so long for, that we crave. I mean, we are appreciation-needing machines, and when we don't get it in the workplace where we spend so many of our waking hours, it can dull us and even demean us. That's why I think this morning can be very important for, uh, for many of us um, that have gathered to worship today. Let me ask you, what was your... First job, the very first job you ever had. What was your worst job? Was your first job your worst job? Are you in your worst job now? Don't say anything, especially if you're on staff at Fondren. But what was your first job? Think back with me to what that was. And there's two ways to answer that question. I bet a lot of your minds drifted to that first time you were mowing lawns or babysitting kids. There was no W-2 involved, right? But then you had your first W-2 job where you, you realized that the federal government withholds. That was a horrible lesson to learn, wasn't it, when, you know, back in the day? But did you mow lawns? Did you babysit kids? Did you bag groceries? Did you flip burgers? Did you tear movie tickets at the theater? What was your very first job? Was it your worst job? What do you remember about it? What type of feelings and all? When I was 13 and a half years old, I was doing the math. Even though Jimmy Carter was president, we were in the middle of an OPEC oil crisis globally. I thought, hey, in a year and a half, because I live in Mississippi, and when I turn 15, I can get my driver's license. And I knew that there are only two cars in the driveway, so I was going to have to do something to put a third out there. So my plan was get a job and buy a Jeep. Now, I didn't want the job, but I did want the Jeep. Man, I worked, I busted at cutting grass, got the Jeep when I turned 15 and got my driver's license. And several months into that, my dad came to my room, kind of like Bill Cosby did with one of his sons, and just talked about how even when you get a Jeep, you still have to pay for gas and insurance and maintenance and all that. It's, it adds up, doesn't it? So he encouraged me to uh, get off the couch get out of the bed, and go get a job. And I did, ready for this, bagging groceries. Would you, couldn't you all see me bagging groceries? Wouldn't you see me as a good grocery bagger? Could, 
right? A lot of you? Yeah. I think I did a pretty decent job, but it, it, it took its toll. But, man, I had to pay for the Jeep so I could get around. I mean, pretty much all the money I made went to that monthly expense of the Jeep. But, man, it was, uh, as one songwriter put at the time, it was uh, summertime blues, right? I want to I raise a fuss. I want to raise a holler about working all summer just trying to make a dollar. I want to call my babe up and take her out on a date, but the boss says, no dice, son, you got to work a late. Uh, what am I going to do? Sometimes I wonder, what am I going to do? Ain't no cure for the summertime blues. And about that time, uh, that season of life, a lover boy had a song, everybody's working for the weekend. Everybody's going off the deep end. And in a way, I just think so many of our songs, so much of what we sing about doesn't extol the virtues of work it sees it as a necessary evil or as something that gets in the way. It impedes human flourishing and progress in life. A Princeton Management Review a survey studied and showed us that the backdrop of this is the fact that we, you and I, we spend 40% to 50% of our waking lives on the job, preparing for the job, bemoaning the job, recovering from the job. 40% or to maybe 50% of our waking lives. Yet... Close to 80% of us have some level of deep dissatisfaction about our work. National Opinion Research Institute based out of Chicago did a survey and they, they asked the respondents to conjecture. Conjecture winning the Powerball jackpot lotto. In other words, you've just won millions of dollars. What would you do? And the, first, the top three answers were, number one, people said, I would pay off all my debt. Number two, I would buy that blank boathouse car. And number three, I would quit my job. In other words, they would walk into their boss, look them square in the eye, and tell them they've become financially independent. Take this job and give it to another deserving person, they would say. <laughs> Ironically, that, job, that song, Jason, Take This Job and Shove It, was written by a guy named Johnny Paycheck. No irony there, right? What about your job today? Where are you in life? And, and I want to give you this morning from Colossians 3. I'd love you to turn there now. We're going to look at it in a moment. If you have a Bible app, punch that in. We're going to put it on the screen for the slackers in the room. But Colossians chapter 3, we'll look at 22, 23, and 24. Robert Bella wrote a book called Habits of the Heart. And in this book, well, let me go to that one first. You're right, Laura. I'm, I'm out of order here. Uh, Lencioni wrote a book called Three Signs of a Miserable Job. It was a fable, a great book. It's on my shelf. I recommend it. Three Signs of a Miserable Job. The first one, he says, is anonymity. The idea there is my boss slash manager slash people that I work with, they don't really know me or care about me as a person. They don't know who I am outside of the job. I feel used. They, they see my utilitarian value of what I do in the workplace, but do they know my fears? Do they know my home life? Do they know what's happening? Do they know my aspirations? Do they know any sort of developmental plan about my life, my faith? It's anonymity. You just don't feel that your boss, manager, coworkers care about who you really are. The second sign of a miserable job is irrelevance. This is the inability to connect the dots. I'm convinced, I know some of you, there's many of us who will go to the car at the end of a long work day. 
and we'll jingle our keys to get in our automobile and we'll look back at the warehouse, the factory, the storefront, the office complex with a sense of what did I do today? I spent all that time there and it drained me. But does it matter? Where is God in this? And we compartmentalize, don't we? It's easy to say, okay, God, I give you Sunday. I give the man Monday through Friday. And I love Saturday. Saturday's for me, right? It's easy to compartmentalize that. But we want to feel like what we do is relevant. The third sign of a miserable job Somebody needs to tell this writer, this is not actually a word, but it's immeasurement, what he calls immeasurement. And this is the subjective nature of work. Not knowing if you're doing a good job, not getting good feedback. Good feedback is important, wouldn't you agree? I learned this week that if you go in an Apple store and you mispronounce a word, they are not allowed to correct you. Do you know that? Some of you wish you were married to an Apple Store employee, right? They're not allowed to correct you. But, you know, we need good input, don't we? I mean, we're only going to grow if we're told what we do well, but if we're also told, hey, here's how you can grow. Here's how you can develop. Mm, This isn't a good fit for you. What I love about our God is he wants us to discover our strengths. Long before that book was written by Marcus Buckingham, Discover Your Strengths, God said that to people. Discover your strengths. Find out how I've made you, how you're wired up, and then lean into that. Those weaknesses you have, as long as they're not character flaws, those weaknesses can be looked past, compensated for. In fact, if you're on a team, if you're in a church, other people have strengths that you don't have. Lock arms. Work together. Your measurement is just not knowing if we're doing well day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month. How am I doing? I I want input. Where are you? Just as you glance at that this morning, three signs of a miserable job. Robert Bella in his book, Habits of the Heart, said that there's three different orientations that we can have when it comes to looking at our jobs. The first is job as, uh, as work as a job, I'm sorry. Work as a job, it's just a paycheck. That's the primary motivation, just a paycheck. But isn't money good? How many of you agree money's good? Before the first service, yeah, most of you, it's about 20%, yeah. Money is good. Money is a tool that God gives us, but it can also be a drug. First Timothy 6, charge those that are, rich, that are rich in this age to be careful. Enjoy their riches, but don't trust in your riches. Be rich toward God and toward others. Before the first service, I was made aware that a gentleman in our church that I don't really know well wants to give $5,000, and he gave $5,000 today. Don't let that prevent you from giving a large check. Join with him. But he wanted to give $5,000 today as a part of the Fondren Church's uh, Phoenix Initiative, our partnership in West Fondren to help some families, to love on some single moms. And we just feel like it's going to be a big part of our 2014. And this man was inspired. I don't know him that well. I don't know what he does for a living. But I, for one, today, I like his job. And I hope he likes his job. Isn't money good? You can provide things for your family. Do you have some good things? Enjoy those good things. Don't let anybody take that away from you. Enjoy those good things. And then think about being a conduit to giving good things to other people. But if, if the paycheck, if the Johnny paycheck is the only motivation for your work, if it's just a job, that's going to lead to a lot of resentment. Because have you noticed when you want money and need money, it just seems that you need and want more? Because your wanter increases. And in today's economy, it's especially tough to meet the demands of what you want, sometimes even need. The first way to view 
your work is work as a job. The second way is work as a career. Now, this is a little higher motivation. This is sort of the idea of prestige and advancement in your career. There's something, something there that's just beyond the paycheck, but that can become a God for us when we see it as personal, self, and sometimes selfish advancement. But the third way and the highest way, according to this book, Habits of the Heart, to view your work is work as a, ready for this? Work as a calling. Work as a calling. Now, if you view your work as a calling or what you hope your next job could be, if you could envision that as a calling, that means to some extent you're a person of faith. Wouldn't you agree? That, that, that means that you believe there to have a calling, you've got to have a caller. And you've got to be the callee. And let me say this morning, church, this is going to shock you. God is the caller. And if we lean in to his plan and to his purposes, we begin to hear the whispers. If we begin to know how he's wired us, if we see our passion and our gifting, if there's a pull where someone out there in the marketplace says, hey, you, you got what we need. Come over here. In fact, we'll pay you for it. And you see God's provision. We would call that a calling. And I believe that God has a calling on us. Now, when I have an opportunity to sit down with people and talk about God's will, it's the same conversation, God's will and a calling. And I do the same thing every time. You'll never want to come see me twice about this because it's a repeat. But I tell everybody, let's look at some scripture in God's inspired word when it says, this is God's will. This is God's will. This is God's will. This is a calling for you. This is a calling for you. Because there's some things that we need to begin to be obedient to of what the scripture says that we're called to do. And then that is a heart preparation precursor to what God can do in your life, specifically with your vocation. Do you know somebody who says, this is my calling? They're not a perfect person, but man, they've discovered their calling. Now, if you know somebody, I would say, first of all, that is rarefied air. But if you know somebody, don't you like to be around them? Don't you want to learn their secret? That person, that man or that woman, they're a person of faith. They believe God has called them to do this. They are the callee. Today I ask you, how do you view your work? If you're retired or unemployed or looking for the next thing, how have you viewed your work? How do you anticipate viewing your work? Is it a job? Is it a career? Or is it a calling? In the Scripture... I learned this week that there is a mention. We typically think, well, you know, if God's going to use somebody, they're going to be sort of like Robert Green or Rick Valori that we'll hear from at the end of the service today. Someone called out to ministry to preach at a church or to lead 200 million flowers, an agency in the state of Mississippi to connect parents who don't have homes, or kids rather, who don't have homes to homes that have love to give. That's a calling, wouldn't you say? But sometimes it's easy to say, well, you leave what is quote-unquote secular to have that special calling. But in Scripture, you know that there are 225 different secular vocations that are mentioned? 225. Isaac uh, developed real estate. Jacob, like Abraham, was a rancher. Joseph was a government official in charge of agriculture uh, and immigration policy, education, He worked for a pharaoh in a faraway land. And Joseph did not feel the best thing to do in serving God was to leave his high-paying government job and to start a not-for-profit, faith-based, charitable organization. 
Joseph said, I'm going to stay right what I'm doing and have a really big impact. Moses and David were in animal husbandry. They would have gone to Mississippi State. David became a military man, as you know. Daniel was a high, he was a prime minister. Esther was also a government official. Lydia, a woman mentioned in the book of Acts, owned a garment business. Peter was a fisherman. Paul was a tent maker. Jesus, you know, was a... And he spent the bulk of his life shaping and fashioning and creating. How about that? God values work. It's all up in here. It challenges the notion that today is for God, Saturday's for you, and Monday through Friday is for the man, doesn't it? Not only do we see God calling people to work in very secular vocations, we see a God who himself is described beautifully as a worker. You know the account of creation. God planned, he designed, then he went to work building and fashioning, crafting what the scripture says and what we see, know, and enjoy was pleasing, is pleasing to him. There's metaphors in the Bible. I could mention many. I'll just choose, I've just chosen a few that describe God himself as a worker. Listen to some of these. Uh, in Proverbs chapter 8, God is described as an architect, as a builder. In Matthew 7, he's described as a teacher. In Deuteronomy 31, he's described as a composer. In Hosea 10, he's described as a farmer. In Isaiah, he's described as a potter. In Psalm 23, he's described as a shepherd. In John 15, he's described um, as a, a gardener. Our God is a worker, and our God calls us to work. Colossians chapter 3, let's look at chapter 3, verse 22, 23, and 24. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Most of your versions say slaves. We're going to address that in a second. I'm going to start over. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Were you here last week? And You know, we looked at the prior verses in Colossians about wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate or provoke your children to anger. That doesn't please God. You see, God wants in our relationships. This theology is not meant to be esoteric and otherworldly. Paul is telling us in Colossians, I hope you're getting this from the letter, but when he does a work and begins to change us, we see it reflected. When we let Colossians 3.16, the word of Christ richly dwell within us, what's going to happen? We're going to start singing, have psalms and hymns in our hearts to God. We're going to submit to one another. This isn't men lording it over. This isn't women having to get defensive and men having uh, you know, to get demanding. This is us loving each other in a beautiful way. We're, we're affirmed all for our value. And children aren't overwhelmed with a father's criticism of all that they're not or not doing. But we uphold the other. And Paul is saying here that when the word of Christ dwells in you and he begins to do a work in you, it's going to affect your relationships in the marketplace. Now, if you're like me, I, I look at things critically. And I've been a student of the Bible for 35 years now, since my childhood really. And I, I come to passages like this and I say, wait, 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 Paul, hold up a second. And maybe today I just want to address this for about a minute. 
If you're here today, you're not a church person. You're not really a person that believes in Christ. You're not sure. Listen, I feel you. You read it. You see a passage like this. You think, whoa, 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 wait. Why didn't Paul just say slaves run free? Earthly masters, let them go. And do the Chris Tomlin song, right? About the chains, right? I mean, that, isn't that what we want from Paul? And what we need to see is we need to understand the historical context of this passage. He's writing. It's easy for us as Americans. We're probably all Americans in here. And it's easy for us to see this through the prism of our past, our wretched past. Wouldn't you agree? A time in our history where there was progress and we were marching forward, but we had a race of people who were enslaved and they were treated harshly and poorly in a way that didn't honor God. And I'm proud to say as a pastor, as a believer, that it was the Christians who led the way in the abolition of slavery. We've talked about it before from William Wilberforce over on the other side of the pond to John Newton, of course, to uh, Abraham Lincoln. It was his faith that drove him. The words of Paul in Galatians 3, whether you're a slave or whether you're free, we're all one. We're all, we all have the same value. But the slaves in that time, when this was being written in the city of Colossae, they were, for the most part, treated fairly. They were compensated very well, and they were on the path to freedom. So Paul, in the context here, uh, knows that there's going to be freedom for these folks, for these men and women, as, as they choose it in the future. There's a man named Onesimus and a small letter, one chapter, called Philemon in the Scripture, and that Paul addresses that in a very tender way that I think would make you proud to be a student and a believer of God's Word. But for our day and our time, Colossians 3 speaks to us very practically to what type of relationship? To the employer and to the employee. And what we see here, Paul is saying, do your work heartily. What type of work? Well, God, I'm going to do my work heartily if it's the job that I want. If I get the promotion, when I get that advanced degree and the door opens up for me and all the ducks line up, then I will do that job heartily as unto the Lord. And Paul slaps us with cold water across the face when he says, whatever you do. Now, I'm a, I'm a man of context, so there, let's just agree there's are, there are some jobs that don't bring any honor to Christ, right? You could probably think of some. We probably shouldn't even mention them in church, like exotic dancers and stuff. But, uh, you know, if you're an exotic dancer today, we're glad you're here. We love you, and Jesus loves you. But let us help you find new employment, right? Would everybody agree with that for the most part? Some people are doing that, but, you know. But there's some jobs, very few, that just they don't inherently glorify Christ. And incidentally, people get enslaved to them. But most jobs can glorify Christ. It's why Paul can be at ease, more at ease than me, evidently, just to say, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. Now, I love that expression because do you know someone, by contrast, who doesn't put their heart into something? You know, a friend, family member, their heart's not in the friendship or in their relationship? Do you know somebody that, you just can't count on them and they're not dependable. They're subpar, lackluster in what they do. Have you noticed that marriages and groups and families, churches, workplaces don't work well if people have part of their heart in it? But man, it's something powerful, isn't it? It's something powerful when you're with someone and they put their whole heart into something. It inspires us, doesn't it? It inspires us to see that. Paul is saying, put your heart into the work that you do. 
N.T. Wright is a scholar, a very brilliant man. And I love the metaphor he gives. I read it and I apply it to what we're talking about today, to your work, to mine, to the potential of our jobs. But he says that, man, that humankind, men and women, we, could, we do well to envision our lives as a mirror set at a 45-degree angle, reflecting from God down to earth the care and dominion that he wants us to have. And shining back toward God is the worship and gratitude that we are to live from. Do you get that? How beautiful if we saw our work that way, that even the little things that I'm doing, the big things, the little things, the middle things, God can be glorified. I can bring his care and dominion. It doesn't say dominate. It doesn't say run over people. It doesn't say jockey for position. It doesn't say live like the FedEx commercials, running over people. But it does say the care and dominion. God really cares about our work. He cares that we do it with all of our heart. You say, Robert, what if I don't have a good job? It's a lot of us. Survey says a lot of us don't have a job. Alan Jackson sings, it's five o'clock somewhere, right? I'm getting paid by the hour and getting older by the minute. Here comes my boss. You know, you know this song? It's a drinking song. Don't say yes in church. But the idea, like so many songs, are, hey, I'm not going to get satisfaction at work. So I'm going to punch the clock, and I'm going to be done, and I'm going to go hang out with, with a navigational beacon, a buoy out there in the water. But look at Genesis chapter 2. Let's understand this theologically. Some of you know this. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. God puts man in the garden. He takes him and puts him in the garden. And what does he say? Work it. Work it. We're called to work. But what happens to Adam and Eve? They mess it up. They mess everything up. They mess relationships up. They mess work up, doggone it. Blame Adam and Eve for your job. Go go into work tomorrow and talk about Adam and Eve and how your poor performance is their fault. Do that. But look, let's understand the context. In Genesis 3, it says this, Genesis 3, 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. The scripture talks about thorns and thistles and painful toil. That's Monday morning for a lot of you, right? But understand this, two big points from this passage that I want you to get theologically because their implication is is grand. Number one, um, work is not a curse. The curse was that sometimes work would be unpleasant. Sometimes you would have conflict at the office. Sometimes you would experience that anonymity. Do they know you? Do they care about you in your life? Have you noticed that you can't leave the problems at home at the edge of the driveway, that when you go to work, that you take them with you and that other people do. You ever notice that? If you're a Christ follower, do you really think that Christ wants you to waste all those hours? I'm not saying witness to everybody that moves and heavy hand your faith on people. I'm saying, as Colossians 4 talks about in the very next chapter, let your speech be, as it were, grace seasoned with salt. Let people be thirsty when they're out on you. They want to know more about you because you're handling the good things and the bad things with a sense of grace. They want to know what's different about your life. Pray. Be watchful in prayer. Make the most of opportunities that God would give an open door. Wouldn't it be cool if we went to work this week and we prayed that prayer and we lived that way? Unpleasant. There's a lot of unpleasant things. That's the curse about work, but work itself 
is not a curse. Work is redeemable. Do you know about Nehemiah? Nehemiah was a cupbearer in Babylon. What does that mean? It means he, ha- he was kind of low. He was a dishwasher. He was a janitor. He was a busboy. He waited tables. That's what it means. And you see, Nehemiah did not want to be a cupbearer in Babylon. He wanted to be a wall builder in Jerusalem. You know what? He became a wall builder in Jerusalem. Hey, Nehemiah, if you could speak to us today, what would you say? He would say, do a good job at a bad job. Do a good job at a bad job. There's something I learned. Or actually, I was refreshed this week studying for this. It's called the 60-40 principle. Ever heard of it? The idea is this, that 60%, if you're in a good job, and some of us are, but if you're in a, a good job, and I'm going to say right now, I don't say this selfishly, I say it to praise him, but I, my numbers are higher. I just, I feel like, I just, I'm just blessed today. I'm honored to be the pastor at Fondren Church. But if you have a really good job today, I'm happy for you, and I know that you're blessed. But let's say that you have a good job. If you have a good job, a really good job, 60% of what you do you love, and it's in line with how you're wired. 60%. 40%, you see where I'm going with this one, simple math. 40%, you don't like it. There's 40% of good jobs, really good jobs, that just it doesn't seem to line up with how you're wired. You don't love it. In fact, you might even really dislike it. It can be a cause of complaining, even though Paul said in Philippians 2, do everything without complaining. You'll shine like bright stars in the midst of a crooked generation, Philippians 4, 2. If you do things, do your work without complaining. But there's 40%. It's a reason they call work, work. When you say there's just some hard things just some things that we don't like about it. Now, let's conjecture a little bit. Say you're a business owner. If you're a business owner, maybe the 60% for you could be you like the product. You believe in the product. Why else would you have started this business? Why else would you have gone into it? You believe in the product that you have. You love the fact that you're your own boss. I went out with some friends last night. Susan and I did. We got treated to a nice steak. And we were with Chip Henderson and his wife, Christy, my friends. He's the pastor at Pine Lake Church. Some of you know Chip really well. And Chip said, hey, Robert, I hear you all have snakes in church. And I said, hey, Chip, I hear you all have guns go off at Pine Lake. You know what I mean? I mean which, what, are we, what are we talking about here, you know? But I looked at him and I said, hey, man, I don't work for you anymore. I do that every so often just to remind him. But, you know, everybody is called to be submissive, aren't they? Everybody is called to be submissive. But if you've started something, if you're an entrepreneur, some of you have, you're, it's joy for you to say, man, I, I kind of get to be my own boss. So I can set my own salary and stuff like that. But the, maybe the 40% for business owners would be, ah, employees, human resources. I got to find good people. I got to work long hours. I got to fire the not so good people. That's the 40%, right? Let's say you're a flight attendant, not for Southwest and Jackson, but somewhere else, some other airline. Let's say you're a flight attendant. The 60% for you could be the cool uniforms or the little wings. It could be the travel to the exotic locations. But the 40% could be customer service and obnoxious, angry people. That, that customer in 4B named Alec Baldwin. I mean, that could be the 40%, right? There's just some people and things about your job that you don't like. Angry, belligerent pastors, arrogant people. 
that could be tough for you. There's a 60-40. Let's say you're Vanna White and you're on a glamorous television show called Wheel of Fortune. You get to smile and walk and turn the letters. If you know she doesn't have to turn the letters anymore. She just pushes the buttons. The 60% is all the money and all the fame and the glamour and the ease, the comfort of of the job that she does. But maybe the 40% is the fact that she has to clap 720 times per episode. I've, I've counted. It's brutal. I mean, that clapping can hurt your hands. But everybody, I think every good job has a 60-40. Would you you kind of agree? There's this 60-40, but I wonder what your percentages are. And I wonder where you are today. I close with this. Jesus told this parable. In Colossians 3, it flows from this in Colossians 3. In my mind, it does. Paul says what? Do your work heartily. Do your work heartily as unto the Lord. Not people-pleasing. Not with your eyes open to see who you can impress. But work unto the Lord. And that changes everything, doesn't it? If you went in tomorrow and made copies and made coffee and filed the reports and did the things that you're asked to do, show up at the staff meetings and do the things, but if you knew that Jesus was the one who was doing your job performance review, how would that change what you do? And if there's a big gap in how you're actually going to work tomorrow and what you would do if you thought about it through that, then that ought to be conviction this morning. Jesus tells a parable. There are three men. This is a made-up story. Jesus tells a made-up story so that you and I would be drawn in and say, hmm, where do I fit in the scenario? Jesus tells about three men that got bags of money. The first man was given five talents, and he went, and he doubled it. He had a great return on, his, on the profit. He showed skill, determination, drive, initiative, way to go. The master, his master... His boss commended him. A second man was given less than the first man, but he too was commended because he too, even though he had less, he went and he made something happen. And he gained a profit and the master commended him. The third man in Jesus' parable took the money that he was given and did nothing with it. There was no ROI return on investment. You see, this guy punched the clock. This guy called in sick. This guy didn't dream. He didn't dare. He didn't try. He didn't risk. He didn't do. Let me state the obvious. He didn't do well on his job performance review. If we're created in such a way where work, your work and mine, is not a curse, even though it is cursed with unpleasantness. But if we're given this life to go work and to cultivate and to build and to craft and to design and to implement and to work. And it's a good part of our lives. It stands to reason from Colossians 3 and this parable that Jesus told is that there will be an ultimate job review. And I'm not being the spooky guy like, you know, Santa Claus. He knows when you're being bad and good. He knows when you're asleep or awake. He's got access to your computer files. That's his right. This isn't that Santa Claus moment in the sermon. I desire this to be an uplifting, ennobling part of the message where we say, hey, we can turn it around. You can go tomorrow and you can begin with Christ. You can begin to change things in your workplace. You can begin to change you in the workplace. You can be that 45-degree mirror reflecting God's care and dominion of the earth and giving back worship and gratitude to Him. Would you pray with me?
Lord, we're grateful for the fact that your word can speak into us. And though it spans um, centuries, we can take this letter that Paul wrote to these believers and we can see how powerfully it can apply to our lives and what we do with the bulk of our lives. Lord, I would pray right now in this room over our church family for some younger people, for some young men and women who are Nehemiahs, that you've got a plan for them. You have a calling on their lives. But right now they're just bearing a cup for king and captivity. There's hard parts about it and they're wondering about where you are in the future. Lord, I pray for them and over them now Lord, that you would speak into them and give them that sense that there's a wall to be built in Jerusalem and you're going to be the one to summon and you're going to be the one to open the door and you're going to be the one to put a call on their lives. And very few in this room will be called out to what we would call a, a, a vocational Christian ministry. Some are. But most are among the 225 occupations listed in Scripture that if we do heartily as to you, realizing that we gain an inheritance, that it matters, even at a bad job, that we do a good job. Lord, I thank you for the folks who are giving. And in just a moment, we can worship you through giving, not just standing and singing and praying, but through our giving. And Lord, I I stand here today on December 8th of 2013, Lord, with my heart full, knowing that right now, this church can meet needs in our church family. Some who have hit hard times, some who are out of work, some who need bills paid or having their needs met. Because this is a generous church. Lord, I thank you that when we give our time and our talents, when we give financial resources, if it's five bucks, five cents, or five thousand, Lord, it's an act of worship. God, move us to move towards you. To not compartmentalize compartmentalize our lives with Sunday being your day, Saturday being ours, and Monday through Friday being wasted time. Lord, show us that it's redeemable. And it depends on how we do our work and how we let you do that through us and how we see it and where our heart is. And so you are the heart changer. To you we pray. In you. Amen.